Growing up poor, I'm very, very frugal. I mean, I remember in college going to the ATM and withdrawing $20 because that was the minimum. And I was wondering why couldn't the ATM just give me $10? $20 was so much. And so now um, not to even have to think about money is something I can't, like not to think about spending, you know, it doesn't matter how much things cost now. I can't do that. So I'm still very, very, very frugal. And I'm always looking for deals. I'll look for coupons. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Okay, welcome back. 250, Jace, episode 250, Millionaires Unveiled podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. Jace, what's going on? Hey, man, I am pumped. We, you know, when we started this thing, I don't know that we ever thought to the 250 episode, but here we are, five years in, interviewing all these millionaires. It's been, it's been, it's been a tremendous journey. That's for sure. Crazy. Midsummer here, heating up. I love it, man. Yeah, and we got a fun interview to celebrate 250 Jennifer with a net worth of a hundred million. So yeah, we've had we've had our hundredth episode was a hundred million. Is that correct? I'm saying yep. that right. Yep, right? that's yep. correct. And then episode we've had somebody um, a little bit higher, and then here we go again, 250, another hundred million. So fun to just hear a totally different perspective. She grew up poor has the majority in one stock, um, but just a great story overall and, and just a, a great lady and fun to connect with her and a fun story overall. Just as a quick recap, last week we had Zach, net worth about 6.5, and he is primarily in real estate between single family homes, duplexes, some multifamily, a lot that he personally owns, and then some syndicated as well. So just one topic that we haven't spoken about much on the podcast when we've talked about introductions or even with people is lotteries, <laughs> which is obviously a little bit, you know, different of a topic. But when, you know, you hear people talking about it now that this Mega Millions is at $1 billion now. So some fun facts. I just looked up a few articles here. It says uh, the already giant 810 million Mega Millions lottery jackpot ballooned to 1.2, 1. 1.02, excuse me, billion after no one matched all six numbers Tuesday night. So this is uh, last week or a few days ago now. This is coming out Monday. And it says you can take a 1.02 billion option paid annually over 30 years, or you can choose the cash option, which is estimated at 602 million. Your chance of winning is one in 303 million. Tickets cost $2 each are sold in 45 different states. So pretty wild, Jace. You feeling lucky? One in 302 million is your chances. Dude, I, I, I might go buy one, you know? Check this out. I, a couple bucks, throw into the pot just for kicks and giggles. <laughs> that's, how, that's how it gets higher. I, I, I don't think I've ever bought a lottery ticket. I never have either, man. <laughs> yeah. But it is yeah. it is wild. And I saw a couple articles too about some companies. I think ra- CEO of Raising Canes or founder of Raising Canes maybe pitched in and, and bought a ticket essentially for every single one of or equivalent of like one per employee and said that if they w- if any of those tickets win, then basically they'll share the money with the whole the whole company. And I think there's a couple other companies out there that have done the same. So it's kind of crazy given I I mean I don't really pay attention to the lottery that much or any gambling uh, yeah, for yeah, in general, same. but 
I mean, it's a big business for one, and two, obviously, somebody's going to come down with that 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 pay. You know, whether it's a, the, the payments over thirty years or taking a lump sum of six hundred million dollars, it's wild. Yeah, it says this is the third biggest lottery of all time. So estimated to get up to one point one by the time I guess the next drawing. And then the biggest was 1.6 in January of 16 and 1.5 in October of 18. This is per CNBC. It says there's a re- uh, required, what does it say, a mandatory 24% federal tax withholding that would reduce your winnings by a cool $155.6 million. So unfortunately, you're not walking away with as much as you thought. Yeah, and you know you know who's going to be there too. Every every family member, every financial advisor, every you know, they'll be knocking at the door too. So you're yeah. probably going to end up paying a few people along the way too to either help you structure for 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 the future and or a few other things. So I'm sure there's 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 some fees in there as well that aren't aren't publicized in the media. Granted, everybody's going to do something different with it, but you know what'd be interesting yeah. to look up too is is kind of the results of lottery winners, you know, 10 years or 15 years after, you know, what's what's happened with with their earnings or their wealth or you know, how it was spent or whatever. That'd be kind of something interesting that we may dig into later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you you kind of hear, is it true? I don't know. I mean, you hear that like lottery winners tend to go all pretty broke pretty quickly, but I don't know. Maybe that's been validated. Who knows, right? Yeah, I have no idea. No idea. Anyway, so interesting topic. We'll see what happens. Maybe Jace will win. I won't win. Anyway. <laughs> I'm not buying one. I'm uh, kidding. If you have a question for us or for any of the millionaires we interview, go to our website, millionairesunveil.com. Hit the tab, ask a millionaire, write it in, and we'll talk about it on the show or, or ask some of our upcoming millionaires the question. So thanks for tuning in to 250th or 250th episode. So we should calculate Jay's total net worth. It's going to be well over um, probably, I don't know what, Jace, 1.5 billion now? Yeah, probably close to that. It's, it's definitely up there. We have, we, we need to go look at that again. It's been a couple, couple months, actually, several months actually, since I've looked at it. So I just looked up our sheet, Jace, where we kind of keep track of this information and, and track it. So we're at about one, a little bit less than we thought, 1.2 billion. Um, that's not everybody that's been launched, but we still have a few in the pipeline of completed interviews that we'll get out. But yeah, total, Net worth of people that we've interviewed through two through two hundred and fifty episodes, one just over one point two billion dollars. So, anyway, pretty interesting stuff, and and you start noticing a lot of the same trends. You listen to enough of these episodes, but obviously everybody has a little bit different strategy, a little bit different take on things. You know, um, there's no one way to do it, right? Yeah. So anyway, thanks for tuning in, and without any further delay, let's jump into today's fabulous interview with Jennifer. Jennifer, do you want to just give us a little about your background or what you're up to now? Sure. Um, so I'm the only child of two farmers, um, and we grew up grew up really poor. I, I remember my mom would wonder out loud a lot if a check would bounce, and then my dad would fret about it. You know, seven years ago, we were sleeping on an air mattress, my husband and I, on the second floor of my in-laws' house. And then fast forward now, um, I'm in my third startup, and have, and we've been doing really well now. Awesome, yeah, and we're going to get a little bit more into the, the details of your story and, and and how you've been able to to make it. But what is your net worth today? Uh, depending on the day, uh, it's around a hundred million. Wow, and how high level? I mean, obviously, there's there's a lot in there. High level, how is that broken up? At a high level, I would say about eighty percent of it is in one stock, and then 
five to 10% of it is in my current company. And then we have a smattering across the remaining 10%. And, and the majority of that 80% in one stock, is that one stock that, that is it part of a company that you started or how, how is that? How did, it, how did you get to that point? Yeah, great question. Um, it's a company that my husband was an early employee of that has okay. since IPO. Wow, that's pretty remarkable. And I'm assuming because of timeline and whatnot, a lot of that is uh, untapped equity at this point. You can't sell anything or, or have you just chosen to leave it in there? Uh, it's liquid, but we are very bullish on the company. Okay. Well, gotcha. So with the money that, that you've allocated elsewhere, you've got a good chunk in your startup. The rest, what asset classes have you chosen to spread that across? Yeah, we have about 20% in cash right now uh, for investment opportunities, home remodeling, um, projects like that. We have about 25% in real estate between our primary residence, rental units that we own, as well as investments between equity and debt. Um, we have about 20% in public equities, and we have about 10% in domestic hedge funds and early stage VCs. We also have 10% in crypto, and the remainder would be in international private equity. Okay, so quite the, the broad spectrum there. The money that's in real estate, mentioned primary residence and investment, are any of those paid off? No, we have mortgages on the three properties we own. Um, we are thinking about actually just paying it off, but the interest rates are so low that we haven't. And one primary residence and then the other is investments, or do you have second home, third home? That's a great question. We actually bought a home in Sonoma thinking it might be our second residence. Uh, and then we put it on Airbnb just to see what would happen. And it was instantly rented. Um, you know, before COVID, it was at about 90% occupancy. So we block it off for the, you know, days that we want to go, which has been basically, you know, zero days in the last two years. Um, <laughs> and it's basically been an Airbnb um, that we, that we net, you know, twenty twenty five thousand dollars $25,000 from um, cash flow from after mortgage. And that's twenty twenty five a month or a year? A year. Okay. So basically you've got a nice place to, to go visit when you want. It doesn't cost anything. Get a little extra cash flow on it. And then the other property. Yeah. One, one of the, I just have to say, one of the benefits of having this Airbnb has been, you know, when you need to do, um, give like donate something for a silent auction, it's really wonderful to donate a, you know, a stay in a house in Sonoma. It works really well for a silent totally. auction. Um, the other house is a triplex in Napa. Oh, okay. So you've got, you've got some, some ties to, to the, uh, the West Coast there with properties. And is that, did you intentionally buy that as a, an investment property out there or was that a different plan? turned into investment property. Yeah, the Napa house is interesting. Um, we, I bought that six years ago. And before then, I didn't own anything, you know, any property. And that one I went into with my best, uh, my, my, one of my best friends who had bought a bunch of rental houses and I wanted to learn from her. And so um, we bought this house, this triplex together as a rental property. And is that cash flow out in Cal California? Positive, mostly because the Sonoma house did so well on Airbnb that I convinced, you know, my good friend, um, we should put the middle unit, which we had trouble renting because it's, you know, thin walls in the triplex, um, to put the middle unit on Airbnb, and it's done really well, and we're mostly cash flow positive because of, uh, because of that middle unit. Awesome. So as as 
the journey's taken shape here with the, the increase in net worth and cash and the capital. You got the quite the broad spectrum of investments. How did you decide which and how much to allocate to, to each of these investment classes? Mm, what a good question. And that's actually the reason I started listening to your guys' show, uh, which is we didn't know where to put our money. And um, so we've just been talking to and listening um, and reading different people's advice. And the number one piece of advice seems to be diversification. So obviously we do real estate and, you know, I've learned a lot from your show and the different investors that have come um, on your show talking about that. Uh, At the same time, we wanted to diversify. And so we went into healthcare through some early stage VC fund investing um, and some public equity investing. We also wanted exposure to um, cryptocurrency as a new class that's really you know, that kind of doesn't follow other markets. And then, of course, the international markets we're interested in because also it doesn't follow domestic markets. Yeah. So, so Jennifer, you have those different pieces and then also some operating businesses, right? Laundromat, car wash. I mean, how do you find these opportunities? Jay's just asked about how you come up with your allocation, but how do you even find them in the first place? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, on the car wash and laundromat, a family member of mine owned it and was looking to get out because the number of quarters you collect, it's really heavy. And so my family member was aging and was looking for a buyer. And so we came along and and had that opportunity to purchase it. Um, but that said, we recently sold it a few months ago, this operating business. We had both the property, so we own the land and the facilities, as well as the operating business, so Opco and Propco. And when we sold it, we listed it on, you know, a bunch of, we went with a broker and um, listed it on like six sites. So if you want to look for opportunities to buy businesses, there are a bunch of sites out there. Um, Buy, biz, sell is probably Mm -hmm. one that is the most popular. And that's who ended up buying our business was an Accenture consultant and and he found it on Buy, Biz, Sell. Yeah, it gets it gets fun to just it's kind of dangerous. You could go down a rabbit hole on that website, right? Just browsing different no companies kidding. to look at. It. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> so the amazing part, let's go back to the story here a little bit, Jennifer, because I feel like we just kind of skimmed over it. But you mentioned you're an only child, two rice firm farmers. You grew up very poor. You remember your mom talking about bounce checks. Then just what was it, seven or eight years ago, you said you're sleeping on an air mattress in your in-laws, and now worth a hundred million. I mean, it's an amazing contrast in under 10 years, right? I mean, what's that like? Does it feel weird? Is it, I mean, tell us about that because I think most people are going to experience that drastic change. Yeah, it's, it's really surreal. I mean, I remember in college going to the ATM and withdrawing $20 because that was the minimum. And I was wondering why couldn't the ATM just give me $10, $20 was so much. And so now um, not to even have to think about money is something I can't like not to think about spending, you know, it doesn't matter how much things cost now. I can't do that. So I'm still very, very, very frugal. And I'm always looking for deals. I'll look for coupons and I'll look for, you know, we just had a stay at a really lovely resort, but I got a 50% off on that because I bought it last minute. And I, I've been telling everyone to get 50% off by buying it last minute. <laughs> so the ways never, they may not change for you. No, definitely not. So you still find yourself, I mean, that was going to be one of my questions is, do you still find yourself looking at the price on everything? 
Oh, absolutely. And I'm still trying to get a good deal. And the thing is, I think, you know, my husband and I have talked about this. He's less frugal than I am. Growing up poor, I'm very, very frugal. But the both of us, we don't want to leave very much to our children. And so we, you know, when we got together, we said if we ever did have money, we wanted to um, donate it and and better the world with philanthropy. And so um, I feel like I'm frugal so I can save more money to donate. Yes. So as much as you're comfortable sharing here, Jennifer, and I know we touched on this a little bit at the beginning, how did this 100 million come to be? Sure. So six years ago, um, I mentioned I bought my first uh, rental property, my first home. And at that point, I had been a massive saver. Um, my first job out of college was $55,000 a year. The highest I've ever been paid has been 150000 But I saved almost all of that. I lived in, I lived in apartments that were, I remember my one of my apartments was $412 a month. So I saved almost all the money I could. About six years ago, I, I think um, my personal net worth was about a million dollars then. Uh, and that was through investments and savings. And then, then about five years ago, we bought our second rental property and um, I had a liquidation event from, uh, from one of my companies. Uh, actually, I had a small liquidation event six years ago, but five years ago I had a, a larger liquidation event. And three years ago, their liquidation event from another company. Um, between my husband and me, we've been in three companies that have had liquidation events. So three years ago, we had another liquidation event, and that took our um, net worth up to about $5 million. Um, in 2019, we moved back home. I'm from Texas. We moved back to Texas, had another liquidation event that took us over $10, $10 million at that point. And then this year, we had another liquidation event, um, which has taken our net worth higher than that. And these are all companies that you've started, correct? Two of them I've started, and one of them, uh, my husband was an early employee yet. And so have you always been an entrepreneur? I am a former consultant and former operator. So I haven't always been an entrepreneur, although one of my friends from high school tells me that she remembers we were in nerd camp together. She remembers that I used to buy uh, the a bag of Dove chocolates from CVS, and then I would go around and sell them for 50 cents each and make a profit that way from um, from our nerd camp nights because, you know, nobody had food then, so I would sell the Dove chocolates. So she says, I was an entrepreneur then, but I don't remember. I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember doing that. Um, so I do remember yeah. trying to kind of follow a traditional path. Um, I had many, many jobs. So Jennifer, what it sounds like you're busy, right? Obviously, you're married, you have a family as well, you have these businesses, now you're trying to figure out how to allocate this money, you're involved in, in I mean, the businesses that you sold, but you'll probably, I assume, want to start another, or maybe not, maybe you also have the laundromat, car wash, all these different investments, the private equity stuff, the angel investing. How do you decide who gets your time? That's a great question. Uh, well, first of all, we work with a financial planner um, who is a high net worth individual herself, and she actually brings a lot of investment opportunities to us. Um, and she does a lot of the due diligence because that's what she loves to do. Um, the second thing is I have uh, an assistant who's excellent. So I'm in another startup, another high growth startup that um, I started a few years ago, and she helps. She's my assistant there as well as my assistant in in life. And so she does quite a lot of research on different areas for for us as well. 
but she helps around in, in all aspects. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, she helps with family life, uh, all sorts of logistics. And so that frees up quite a lot of time. And and when did you feel like it made sense to hire somebody like that? Uh, Well, I have to say she's not full time. So we have been working on 20 hours per month basis, on uh, $25. It was when that there was that company called Zirtual that um, you may remember from, I don't know, probably five to seven years ago that started. And it sounded like a great idea, which is kind of fractional assistant sharing. And um, so I just signed up for it then, um, paid probably $200 a month for eight hours a month, I think is what I started with. And from there, I realized, you know, how how it can really free up time. Because uh, frankly, I'm not very good at administrative things. And it takes uh, it took my virtual at the time a whole lot less time. Um, in, in eight hours, she did as much as I could probably do in 20. So it freed up, call it 20 hours of my time. So that's when I realized it was it was something really worth it. Yeah. And, and how many hours a week do you work now? In my full-time job, uh, which is the company I started, I work, I would say... Probably 45 to 50 hours a week. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then obviously would, the family. I, I would and, like and to work. Yeah, I would like to work 60 or 70 hours a week, but it's very hard with a family. Yeah. So and I have has to it just always let been that way? Go. Yeah, I just have to let some things go. Yeah. And, and has it always been that way for you? You've always worked that much or more because it's just your company now? Uh, yeah, no, I've always worked really hard. You know, growing up poor, I, I just saw working hard as a way to get ahead. Um, and since then, you know, what's crystallized in my head has been the the three things that matter in doing well financially. Uh, I would say is smarts, drive, and access. So those three things. And if you have two of them, you have a very high chance of doing well financially. And then if you have three of them. Um, you have an even higher chance, but you just need two of the three. And so I had that semblance of a thought growing up. And so drive, I see, is working hard. Um, and and so I've, I remember I, <laughs> I would work 80, 90 hours a week. Well, one time I clocked in, let me think, 130 hours a week, and they're only 168 hours in a week. Whoa. But yeah, I remember uh, one, one, one very bad week, I worked 130 hours in, in a job that I had. Jennifer, do you mind elaborating on those a little bit? What does access mean? And, and maybe elaborate a little bit on smarts as well. Sure. I think what access means is access to the right networks of people to ask questions and get advice, uh, as well as have access to, like if you're starting a business, access to capital. So kind of being in the right networks to have access to information and knowledge and or capital that you may need. So resources. So access to resources um, is what I mean by access. And then by smarts, uh, this could be one of two ways. And, and, you know, a bunch of my friends have done very well. And so they're either just incredibly like book smart, right? So they're really, really good at math and kind of can quant compute a lot of things um, in trading strategies or they're very street smart and and can work with people to get things done or kind of figure out figure out how to say make a company work or how to grow a business that they're in even bigger and get rewarded for it. So I think that's what I mean by smarts. Awesome. So as you look towards the the future here, is there something I know you mentioned philanthropy and and a couple other things. Do you feel like you're still on 
the upward trajectory? Is it, is it you know, the accumulation phase in, in your net worth and in your financial journey? Or are you more to that preservation phase at this point? Mm, what a good question. I think for, I would say probably a third of what we have, oh, we're probably talking about preservation. And then the other two thirds, we're talking about growth. So we're finding opportunities to grow it even more. Uh, we are holding off on philanthropy unless it's a tax advantage at this point, because we have a young family. Uh, we also don't know where life is going. And we also don't know where our philanthropic interests are in terms of where our assets could make the uh, largest impact. And frankly, we don't even know what impact means to us yet. So as you, as you look at the two-thirds and accumulation fade, still a good chunk, obviously, is either going to be in private businesses or you know, it seems like you've got your allocation pretty well set. What kind of return do you look for and what do you look for in an investment opportunity? That is a good question. I think it depends on the asset class, right? So cryptocurrency, for instance, it could go to nothing and we're okay with that and the return would be negative. Um, but at the same time, cryptocurrency could go really high. Uh, it could be, you know, over a thousand percent. So that's kind of a wild card. If we look at real estate, which is kind of the most tried and true uh, asset class other than public equities that we have, the we have two types of real estate investments. One is the kind of general multifamily investments that we have done. And the, the IRR for those, we, you know, and this is with a LPGP structure where you just put your money and you don't have to do anything. For those, we look for an IRR of, you know, 18% or north of 18%. Um, and we're doing better in some niche areas of that real estate class. For instance, military housing, uh, we're, we're getting much better IRRs on. Um, and then the other real estate class that we have invested in are more debt instruments. Um, so these range from we have, for instance, a fund that we have put a big chunk of money where we're getting 10% per year and we get it deposit in our bank account every month. Um, and that's a five-year window. And then at the end, we get our principal back. There is risk, but not too much, which is why the return is only 10%. Um, and the same time, we have um, other kind of debt instrument, real estate investments that um, annualize to 40% a year, um, but they're in six-month chunks and there's risk involved. And in, in, for instance, one of them is a Brooklyn renovation and uh, we're probably going to do one in the Bronx as well of New York. Um, and if the houses don't sell for what the developer thinks the houses will sell for, then um, then we may lose a lot of money. So um, so it ranges from 10% on uh, low risk to 40% um, or more on some of the higher risk ones um, that we're trying out. For some of these investments, maybe particularly in the in the real estate you know, what do you usually, you know, what, what's your comfort level in terms of writing that check? Is it, hey, I'm just going to you know put a six-figure sum in these and that's going to be it. I don't want any capital calls. Or is it more, hey, you know what, I'm willing to, to probably ride this ship with this particular investment for as long as, in, as I need to? Mm -hmm. Well, we try to keep our family's um, spending amount fairly low. So we don't really need any of the investments to pay our day to day, right? We could probably get by on my salary. Um, and I don't make that much. Uh, but my salary and maybe one or two small investments would probably pay for our family's living costs. And so we're not really looking for 
any of these investments to to be supporting our lifestyle. So what we like to do on the real estate things is as we meet new people, we'll sort of like toe in uh, toe in the water a little bit with between fifty and two hundred thousand, um, and and kind of work together over a course of a few months, half a year, whatever the sort of project um, span might be to get to some milestones, and then put more in after that. Over the last seven years, mentioned going back to when you mentioned that you were basically broke and, and had nothing to to where you are now. At what point did you feel comfortable increasing your lifestyle and, and spending? Because obviously you weren't spending then what you probably are now. How has that journey evolved? Mm, well, <laughs> to be honest, it's still evolving. I'm not comfortable spending very much still. And I think if you look at the, the one area we spend on is travel um, for the experiences, right? Uh, and I'm borderline millennial. Um, so very much about experiences. And so this year we have started to loosen up um, on on spending and travel. Even then, though, I'm looking for 50 percent off deals. So um, I think we're starting to this year. Um, this year we have looked at buying an airplane. But even then we're looking at an Airbnb model, which is um, how, how what's the break even point of renting out this aircraft so that we can cash flow positive on it. Hmm, interesting. The, the loans that you mentioned, the real estate loans, are those always collateralized by something? Um, they are usually collateralized by the real estate asset, yes. But the real estate asset, like the military housing, for instance, the unit um, are bought, like the house that would be a teardown is bought for, say, twenty or $30,000. Um, and then you have to put a lot more money in to renovate it. So yes, it's collateralized, but kind of nobody wants that asset. Um, <laughs> right. So yes, it that, that's why I hesitate. Yes and no. They're usually collateralized by the asset. Um, however, some of the other investments, for instance, VC funds, hedge funds are not collateralized at all. Um, and then and, and, and you had asked about capital calls. Um, one thing that I've since learned is um, on VC investments or some fund investments, it's a capital call over, say, three years or four years. So you don't actually have to have all the money now. You just have to have it committed. So take out the businesses that you guys have, have built and your husband was an early employee at. What have been your top two investments? And, and tell us about a bad investment you've made. Mm. Let's see. Top two investments. I would say... Just on a percentage gain basis was an apartment that my mom and I did together. She bought for thirty six thousand uh, and and that included a parking spot, which is incredible. And then the owner the the this complex that it was in was own eighty to ninety percent owned by a same owner who wanted to own a hundred percent of the units. So went around, dissolved the HOA and um and forced a sale, except fortunately, we have a good real estate attorney who pointed out a couple technical things he was doing wrong and which would hold up the big process. So I let him know that I did a comp analysis of the market and found that it wasn't it wasn't right what he was offering us. And so I asked for one hundred thirty thousand. Um, you know, this is a thirty six thousand. We did put money into it in terms of renovating it. And then um and then he was trying to force a sale for eighty thousand. I told him, no, I have comps for that get us to one hundred thirty. Wouldn't budge on that, and and we eventually had the sale. So on a percentage basis, that's probably um, one of the better ones. 
Um, and then I can think in absolute um, dollar ones if, if helpful. But um, so that's an example of one that's done well. Uh, gosh, we've had mistakes as well. So many mistakes. Um, we've done some angel investing in early stage startups. And, you know, um, I would estimate we've probably put in about 300,000 into different angel investments and gotten, gosh, I think we'd be lucky if we get 20% back. So that's a loss. I mean, of that's still pretty good, though, even if, yeah. I mean, oh, 20% of your initial, not a 20% return. Yes, uh, we've lost 80% of that. <laughs> and then I have different um, I have different individual stocks that I've invested in and have basically lost all of it as well. <laughs> so I don't. So oh, now we do not invest in early stage startups or um, and I don't invest in individual stocks. My, my husband's a much better individual stock picker than I am. And do you do index funds? Um, yes. Yeah, so half of our public equities are in index funds. Um, and then the other half are in things like the FANG stocks, the um, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google. Uh, we put in NVIDIA in there sometimes uh, as an extra N as well. NVIDIA is the graphic chip company. So we do FANG stocks and index funds. Yeah. So Jennifer, just big picture here. So net worth of 100 million, you got 80% of that tied up in, in the one company stock that you're bullish on, you mentioned, right? So that leaves you 20 million if you start doing a lot of fifty or hundred thousand dollar or two hundred thousand dollar investments, even five hundred thousand dollar investments, it becomes a lot to keep track of. You're so, absolutely right, and it's not what, only to keep track of where they're going, but also collecting the K ones and ten ninety nines to do your taxes. It's quite a lot yeah, of work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All that, and then you're you're trying to manage it. You're trying to oversee it. You're working with the different operators. You're a limited partner. You're a general partner. I mean, you got all these different pieces moving on. So how do you decide? Hey, this is worthy of you know. You told Jace it was fifty to two hundred thousand ish to kind of date before you get married. Mm-hmm. How do you decide who that money goes to initially? Mm. Uh, we have not come up with a very good strategy, uh, which is why I listen to your podcast to get ideas. Um, so we have recently talked about a minimum check size of two fifty, just to just to make it more manageable because the way we've done it is probably a mistake uh, in terms of the the many, many different little investments that we do. Uh, and so we're thinking about a check size of 250. However, we still want the dating phase. Um, and then the question is, um, how do we vet that? And uh, we'll do a couple calls and then check the numbers. Um, we want to look to see if there's anything off about it because there are a lot of people who will tell you an investment is very, very good, um, but just the numbers don't match up. And then <laughs> some backdoor due diligence calls will tell you that, say, that market is not good or or um, it's incredible. Sometimes you do, do due diligence calls on people, you know, backdoor ones, never references that they give. And uh, you'll find out some some skeletons in the closet. So how do we find who to date? We do a couple calls, make sure the numbers are correct. And then also the people are, uh, are straight. Yeah. Good approach. Good approach overall. So let, let's shift gears here and talk about asset protection. And we have a listener question here. We're going to play. Hi, I am a new listener. I've listened to five of your podcasts so far, and I have a question that I have not heard addressed yet. That is, how do millionaires protect their assets? So an example is I have an investment account that is taxable and I moved it into an LLC to protect it from creditors in case my insurance doesn't cover a claim against me. But I would like to know how other millionaires are handling this same issue. Thank you. 
Yeah. So I think that the, this in four parts, one is how do you protect against liabilities? Um, the second is how do you protect against taxes? Um, the third is how do you protect your investment returns? And then the fourth is how do you protect, um, kind of the overall amount that you have? So in terms of the first one, which is how do you protect against liabilities? Um, for anything that we might have risk exposure on, for instance, car wash, laundromat, huge ex- uh, risk exposure, even rental properties, a slip and fall um, and a lawsuit is risk exposure. Um, we have created um, some LLCs that you shelter assets in. We do not ever name the LLCs after anybody in our family. Uh, we always give them names that you couldn't tie back um, to us. Also, because the LLCs get you know, you have a lot of them after a while, we've learned that you can do what's called a series LLC. And so um, any attorney, um, our real estate attorney does this for us, where we create one LLC, one name, and then within it, we have series one, series two, series three, that we can then shelter assets in each one of them that's protected. So in terms of liability protection, we mostly work with um, sheltering and LLCs. Uh, We also have a general liability line um, just in case Uh, we calculated what the risk of lawsuits are. um, And that's, you know, of the people who stay in our Airbnbs, you know, what could their income loss potential be? And then try to protect with a general liability line. The second, in terms of protecting from taxes, um, that's a great question. You know, uh, just as a side note, we would invest more in hedge funds. The hedge fund returns are amazing. They're, they've been 25 to 40% plus per quarter. We would invest more in hedge funds, except for any gains in the hedge fund, we have to pay taxes as we go. And so you have to be much more, you know, liquid in cash to be doing that. So that's just a side note. Protecting on taxes, uh, we are exploring and probably will uh, will invest in an instrument called a PPLI, private placement life insurance. And um, just like you have a life insurance policy, if it ever pays out, that's tax free. When you're lucky enough to be able to put, you know, a big chunk of it in um, a life insurance instrument, you can actually have a third party manager trade it for you. So it's not like a life insurance company with really low returns, but you can get better returns and shield those returns from um, taxes. And then the third way um, that we've been exploring in terms of shielding from taxes are opportunity zone investments. So we haven't made any opportunity zone investments, but we've come close. And um, one of the reasons is that we'd like to learn about the tax benefits of investing in those. Um, The third, which is protecting investment returns, because (laughs) when you read about investing, it's all about kind of that return rate, right? The way we protect against that, and we're trying to figure out our uh, ideal strategy is um, diversification. So having an allocation strategy that is very diversified, where you don't have um, correlations um, between the asset classes, that if one asset class moves up, the other one could move down, right? Or or vice versa. So we're trying to get asset classes that aren't so highly correlated. Um, And then the fourth one, which is um, the protecting against the overall amount. Um, that one we haven't quite figured out. I would say what at least I try to do is stay frugal and not spend beyond our means in terms of I have a salary. 
uh, right now. It's not that big. And then we have some investments that are pretty steady in returns and we just live off that. So we don't have to worry about our overall amount. I know that may sound silly, but um, that's, I think, gives peace of mind, at least to me. No, it's, it's yeah, it's really interesting overall. Thank you for sharing all that. And then when, you, when you're coming up with these LLCs and you have the series LLCs and different investments within each of them, is there a certain cap in, in terms of value that you put on each one? Just so that if if something were to happen, it doesn't totally destroy you. You just, you know, you're capped out at a certain amount of value in each LLC. You know, we haven't hit that problem yet. And in fact, we're probably investing directly in rentals and, you know, car wash, laundry, mat kind of operating businesses less. And we're actually divesting of those. Um, so we sold the car wash and laundry mat, as I mentioned a few months ago. We're selling one of the rental properties and And then my friend and I, who own the other one, we had agreed to sell it when our kids go to college to fund their college. But since that's sort of not needed on either of our, we may actually sell that as well. And then so not have that liability risk exposure at all. And why are you selling? Is it because of that liability risk or because you feel like it takes too long to manage or because you can find better returns? All of the above. We are spending quite a lot of time as property managers, um, you know, messaging with guests and uh, tenants and handymen and things like that, doing that a lot ourselves. It's also not as good returns. Our um, cap rate on these properties aren't great. Our cash flow as a percentage of cash invested isn't as good as some of these other asset classes and uh, other investment opportunities that we have. Um, And so my friend and I are still in it because it allows us time to talk, right? We talk every month now um, because we have, you know, we have all sorts of tenant and guest issues. Um, So we talk and we're friends and it's a, a, it forces us to talk. Otherwise we probably wouldn't talk for a year or two at a time. Interesting. So Jennifer, one thing that we touched on a little bit earlier that I, that I want to come back to is just how you think about that next generation in in lessons and wealth and and what you plan to do with your family and and your you know, giving and everything go, that y'all will be taking into, you know, the next couple decades here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, my husband and I talk about this quite a lot. And we have both agreed that uh, we don't want to, we're very much of the Warren Buffett um, approach, which is we, we want to leave enough for them to say, buy a house and maybe something else, but not enough that they can do nothing. Um, and so uh, we're not actually going to be talking about the various trusts and the amounts of money we have um, with our kids. Um, They won't know that they have any trusts. In fact, our financial advisor, um, her son has a very, very large trust that he doesn't know about um, until he turns a certain age. Um, For our kids, we had set the age at 35. So we fully expect them to go get an education, go get a job. You know, I've helped um, one of my children start a business so that she can make more money. Um, so, and then every time she wants me to buy her something, I say, well, we need money for that. You know, how are you going to, you know, how are you going to find that money? And she says, oh, we need to go sell more things in my business now. So we're, uh, we're trying as much as we can not to think of passing this on to generation, you know, the, the kind of bountiful blessings that we have, we're not passing on to um, other generations, but instead setting them up to be successful themselves. How do you go about education for your children? Are you sending them to private schools? Are you going to pay for that? How so, if, if you are? Yeah, no, we're doing public schools. 
And uh, in terms of uh, high school, we are thinking maybe private school, uh, perhaps boarding school, and then colleges will probably pay for college. Both my husband and I had um, parents where the, th- the gift to us in terms of adulthood was helping us pay for college. Grad school, uh, you know, I didn't take on loans for, but kind of got loans from other sources. Um, but college, my parents uh, scraped scraped and I got scholarships to pay for college so we didn't have loans. So we would like to give that to our children as well. And you'll tell your children that? In terms of oh, paying no, for their no, schooling no. and whatnot? I don't think so. We'll cross that bridge once they get into a college that, yeah, a college that um, they like and that we agree on. When you get together with, with friends or family, do you discuss wealth, money, investing strategies? What a good question. I, th- I think the answer is it depends. So I did go to business school. So with my business school classmates, we do talk about money because that's kind of the currency of business school, right? Um, and investing and, you know, what what you're doing with your money. With some of my friends who are entrepreneurial as well, uh, yes, we talk about that, especially in light of our startups and and our startups not being liquid is, is often the context for that. And then with other friends so from college, you know, I went to a liberal arts college. No, we don't really talk about that. Instead, we talk about you know what we're curious about and what we're trying to learn about. So no, we don't talk about. So I think it depends. Uh, with family, my parents tend to be very nosy. And so we, we don't actively talk about, uh, we don't talk about money or wealth with my parents. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I know we're getting tight on time here, Jennifer, but I, I just want to talk about a couple things we talked about before we started recording. One of those, you know, you, you wrote in because you want you wanted to share a positive message to women, right? That you can mm-hmm. be successful in, in tech and how that's had an influence on you. So I just wanted to give you a, a chance to share your thoughts on that topic. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I wrote in because you had a call out for more women. And so there are two things that kind of looking back on the last um, 10 or 20 years that I've done, which I think has served me well. Um, the, and those two things are, number one, ask for what you think you're worth. A lot of women, and I certainly was like this, wouldn't and would just kind of take what I was given. Uh, but once I started asking for what, you know, I just, actually, I didn't know what I was worth, but I, someone had given me the advice, just ask for more. So I just asked for more. And uh, so I just asked for as much as I could get. Um, and usually people gave it to me, which is crazy. A book comes to mind that is a good read here, which is a book by Cal Newport called So Good They Can't Ignore You. And he talks about how um, you can build up your capital, your personal capital, so that you can charge whatever you want for what you're worth and then have financial freedom and and then love what you, you're doing as well. And so two stories come to mind in terms of when I tried this and had the light bulb moment, oh gosh, I should do more of this. So one comes to mind, which is um, after grad school, um, I got a job offer um, in healthcare for a private company and they offered me 90,000. And my classmates were getting offers for more than that. So I asked for um, $125,000 and a $25,000 bonus based on performance. And um, back we kind of went back and forth. And I said, well, you know, frankly, I have other opportunities. If my classmates are getting these offers, I can probably go get those too. And bam, they made it happen. Um, so I said, wow, okay, I should, someone had told me women um, under negotiate their salaries or don't negotiate at all. And so I took that in mind and I just asked for what I thought was a lot and I got it. Another 
story comes to mind, which is in my first startup, um, my co-founder and I were talking and he offered me 1% equity. And I said, I don't think so. That doesn't sound like a co-founder to me. And we settled on, um, and he had already kind of done some beta testing and things with the technology. And so we settled on that I would get two thirds what he had just so that we could account for some of his time spent up front. I asked for that and he said no. And then I said, great. I mean, I can go do other things. And, you know, there are all, all sorts of other opportunities. And and then he said, oh, no, let's do that. So got that. So it went from 1% to over 10% uh, on a fully diluted basis. For you. Good for so, that's, um, so that's the first thing that I learned, which is ask for what you're worth. And if you don't know what you're worth, just ask for an egregiously large amount and see if you can get it. Um, the second thing that I've learned over the last decade or so is start a business and don't, if you have drive, you know, smart drive and access. If you have drive, start a business and don't start a business that is, um, you know, just kind of passes time if you don't want to. If you want to, that's great. But if you want to start a business and grow it, you should do it. And then you should do it in technology and not consulting and not research. And the reason is because a consulting firm valuation is one, maybe two times revenues. Mostly it's on an EBITDA basis, right? Like a multiple of EBITDA. So with consulting, it's one times revenue. If you're lucky, maybe two times revenue. Tech businesses right now are trading or or private ones are selling for 5x revenues. The public ones are trading at 20 to 30x revenues. So if you start a business and you want to grow it, start it in tech. And the the reason I often hear from women that I talk to, whether it's friends or um, potential mentees, is, oh, I don't know tech. And you know what? I don't either. I'm not. I mean, I wish I coded. I wish I had learned programming, but I don't. But you can talk the talk. You'll learn it. Don't worry about it. You can hire people to do that. Um, so if you want to start a business, you have drive and then you have either access or smarts, hopefully both um, start a business uh, in an area that you get a, a good valuation and a good multiple in. So those are the two things that I have learned that often women don't do that I've sort of played around with and tried doing and and found that it's it's worked really well, at least for me personally. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing, Jennifer. What great advice for anyone, male or female, right? So we'll we'll end it there. Thank you so much. Really, everybody. Thank again, you both Jennifer for this Netflix, podcast. I really love your podcast. Million. Well, thanks for coming on. We're appreciative to you for giving us more than an hour of your time here. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Jennifer. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.